Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. All right, guys, let's jump right into the news, and then we're going to get into one mailbag question uh, before we wrap up for today. So, um, Jacob, I hate to do this to you because I know that the Alamo Draft House is near and dear to your heart, but uh, we've heard some unfortunate news out of uh, that uh, company, I guess. And uh, I wonder if you could run that down for us. Yes, the Alamo Draft House uh, feeder chain has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is not a death knell but it's definitely a sign of the pandemic times that they had to do this they are closing several locations uh but right now the current plan is is in a statement they put out even actually this morning the things intend to be business as usual they just have uh outside investors who came in to uh rescue them more or less it's ultimate altamont capital partners uh as well as affiliates of Fortress Investment Group, which both sound like dystopian companies to me. They really do. <laughs> um, and among the theaters closing is the Ritz location in downtown Austin, a place that I've been going to on the regular for over a decade, where I have a 70 millimeter projector there. And it's been a very important cornerstone of Austin film culture. And I know that as much as Draft House has been in the headlines for negative reasons over the past few years due to some uh, allegations uh, and and more so more than just allegations, essentially proof of some toxic workplace allegations, um, doesn't change the fact that this is where I saw movies and it's where a lot of people see movies and it's where I spent foundational moments in my life and. Before the pandemic, the company was on a really big expansion plan. They're planning opening new locations on the coasts. Uh, the, the long planned Los Angeles version was getting ready to open up, and it's just a real bummer that I just can't foresee a future where having outside investment firms being a good thing for a theater chain, especially one that you know was happy to lose money on strange <laughs> events and repertory screenings and festivals like Fantastic Fest, 
it's just a real bummer to me personally. Um, putting aside all the negativity around them in the past few years, just mm-hmm. put it all aside for a second. It's just this is where I saw movies, guys. Yeah, and it, and they can put out a release saying we're the same thing going forward, but I I can't imagine them being the same going forward after this. I was going to ask you about that. You mentioned Fantastic Fest and, you know, that like the idea of um, outside investors coming in and purchasing a company is something that, you know, people in the media landscape are are very familiar with. Uh, that's been going on for quite some time now as this industry has sort of uh, gone down, you know, further and further downward and uh, more and more people end up losing their jobs and, and getting, um, you know, pushed aside and consolidations and all that kind of stuff. With a company coming in and purchasing or, or bailing out Draft House, as it were, uh, do you think? What do you think? I guess Jacob about the f- the future of Fantastic Fest. Like, and that festival has been so linked to the Draft House. Do you think that if they can't do it there, they can do it somewhere else? That's a question that I'm not prepared to fully answer. I will say that I have heard that, the, that Fantastic Fest loses the Draft House money every year. It literally is a money loss, and they, they do it because it brings in a lot of prestige and brings in premieres and brings in a lot of positive buzz, and it just makes the Austin film community and the Washington community uh, happy. It's, it's, a, it's a festival that people tend to enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, and, it, and it's always been like really, really good for like a really good social marker for the company. But like I said, it doesn't make money. In fact, it loses money. So I would watch that space because I I have a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach about that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep our eyes out, our, our eyes out for that. Um, so the next uh, news story here is about The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the upcoming Disney Plus uh, Marvel Studios TV series. Um, Variety did a uh, pretty good profile of Anthony Mackie, who's one of the stars of this upcoming show. And... Uh, sort of buried within that profile is a report that uh, while bound by standard Marvel grade secrecy, the actor confirms there have been no discussions of a second season for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, This is something that, uh, you know, Kevin Feige, the the president of Marvel Studios has talked a little bit about, you know, the various Marvel shows, the ton of them that have been announced and will continue to be announced. Some of them are just going to be one and done shows. Some of them are going to have, additional seasons i think loki is one that uh if it hasn't been like officially announced yet it's like the worst kept secret in hollywood that (laughs) there is going to be a loki season two um but uh falcon the winter soldier i think all of us were sort of like wondering about the future of that series is it going to be more than just the six episodes that are planned for this upcoming show and this variety piece says no there are no plans for season two right now um that doesn't mean that this is going to be the end of these characters journey on the small screen. Uh, I mean, we're pretty sure that Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie are Anthony Mackie are going to be incorporated into more Marvel movies going forward. But just because the Falcon and the Winter Soldier uh, is a what, what appears to be a one and done show does not technically mean that they can't come back to be in a show called Captain America and Bucky as uh, Brad Ullman suggested in our Slack, because that was the name of a comic book title at one point or uh, you know, whatever the new Captain America starring Anthony Mackie, whatever the case may be, there is a chance that um, Marvel decides to take these characters and just plot, you know, stick them in a different story uh, that has a new title. And that would be, I guess, a way for them to, 
uh, keep Kevin Feige as the the creative overlord of this whole thing and not necessarily give any one showrunner, um, you know, outsized power, I guess, in the, in the Marvel system. Uh, theoretically, you could sort of like wipe the slate clean and bring in new voices, uh, writers and, and showrunners and stuff like that telling these stories. And I kind of have mixed feelings about that because it kind, kind of, of a would... comic book approach, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's that's part of my mixed feelings because there is so much precedent, even in the movies, of doing this kind of thing um, with with these characters and with sequels and stuff like that. Um, but and and certainly in comic books, but it, it kind of I don't know, like if I was Malcolm Spellman, who is the creator and and. I guess they're calling it head writer instead of showrunner over at Marvel. Uh, the person who essentially created Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And then, you know, I was able to do that and and wanted to tell more stories. But then, you know, a year or two later or whatever, Marvel announces that those characters are coming back, but it's in a different series with a different you know set of creatives. I would kind of feel bummed about that. So, but then, you know, I also like the idea of, a bunch of different voices being given the opportunity to tell these stories. So, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen there. I just wanted to bring it up here and, and sort of like take your temperature guys and see what you were thinking about this. HD, do you have any, any reactions or um, I guess predictions about what might happen here? Um, that's an, that, that's an interesting thought. I actually hadn't thought of that um, sort of approach to the Marvel shows until you had brought it up. Um, and it's something that they have pulled off the, before with the Marvel films and of course the comics, but does kind of give that cog in the machine type of feeling to these creatives who are uh, running the shows essentially, and then getting getting someone else to replace them. It's definitely antithetical to what TV has been for the past, I don't know, few decades. But um, I don't know. It's interesting. I don't. I don't really know how I think about it yet. Jacob, do you have any thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are that <laughs> just like smart to say Ben by Adoni. You guys summed it up pretty much. Uh, I I don't think we will get Falcon Winter Soldier season two, but I guarantee you that those characters will pop up in their TV show, as Ben said. I, I don't even think we'll get a Loki season two. I think we'll get a, a another TV series starring Loki. Mm, <laughs> so okay. I, I think that's going to be the pattern going forward. Yeah, I mean, Alan Sappenwall, who's a, a really great uh, television critic, has been doing it for, for a long, long time. On Twitter yesterday, word came out that uh, Bosch is getting a, a spinoff series on IMDb TV. It's moving from Amazon Prime into a new like spinoff show, and like some of the same actors are, are reprising their roles. And he mentioned uh, on Twitter that um, part of the reason for that is like a financially driven decision, like you know, if you keep the same actors and the same creatives and stuff like that, uh, uh, I guess, contracted on the same show and just the show builds and builds and builds, those people's uh, quotes can go up over the course of multiple seasons. But if you sort of wipe the slate clean and and plug them into a quote unquote new show, um, then some of those like financial incentives go away for the creatives. And it's a way for like the companies to, you know, save money. Um, and that uh, I, I would not put that put it past Disney to uh, to take that approach. So we'll, we'll see what happens with the, the future of these Marvel shows and whether or not they just get sort of sequels in name only or, or what happens there. But uh, speaking of Marvel, uh, HT, tell me about Paul Bettany's uh, potential troll that he, <laughs> he unleashed upon the internet. So Paul Bettany, the little stinker, 
is the gist of this story. Um, Early on in the run of WandaVision, Paul Bettany had teased the arrival of a top secret star with whom he had always wanted to work with. And, you know, this, of course, sent set the internet ablaze with theories. Is it Benedict Cumberbatch to lead into Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness? Is it Nathan Fillion as Wonder Man? Is it uh, Ian McKellen as Magneto? Um, And it turned out to be none of those things, uh, possibly, potentially, (laughs) because... As everything is said under the Marvel machine, uh, everything is is pretty still kept under lock and key. But it appears that this cameo that Paul Bettany was teasing uh, was none other than himself. The uh, white vision that was revealed at the end of last week's episode of WandaVision, uh, which is the um, new vision android imbued with the power from um, the drone that was retrieved from Wanda's hex. And this is um, basically going to be seeing Paul Bettany playing opposite himself, presumably, uh, and White Vision presumably being evil, as we're all we're all thinking. And mm-hmm. um, it, it, Paul Bettany, in, in an interview with Good Morning America, said um, fans were guessing people like Benedict Cumberbatch or Patrick Stewart. And I was thinking, God, that's a good idea. They're going to be so disappointed when they find out it's me. <laughs> Uh, but one of the hosts of Good Morning America did ask Paul Bettany if he, there's another potential secret cameo down the line that has yet to be revealed. But Paul Bettany uh, was suddenly faced with technical difficulties and did not respond. <laughs> it, okay, so he, he was faking the te- technical difficulties as a way to uh, to avoid the question, basically. Um, yes. HT, I want to ask you about this. Do you think, okay, so so, you know, as he mentioned, there's been a huge swell of uh, fan speculation riding the wave of that first Bettany comment about the actor that he's going to be acting with. And now, like, the idea that he would go on Good Morning America the week before, uh, you know, a few days, actually, before the um, the new episode, the, the season finale of WandaVision, and reveal that it's just him, um, I, I, I kind of... I don't know how to feel about this. I'm I'm wondering if like this is the troll, you know, like uh, that's something that that you mentioned that the host asked about, like uh, at the very end, like, okay, Paul Bettany, are you lying to us now or were you lying to us before? And I just want to see what you think the real answer is, HD. I don't know. I mean, he it's totally possible that he's lying now, and this is just kind of uh, uh, him trying to throw everyone off his scent. Uh, and uh, to say it, it was all a joke, actually, uh, mm-hmm. which wouldn't be beyond Marvel. They've uh, blatantly lied to us before. So, you know, maybe this is just a fun little fun little um, stunt. Like and, a misdirection at yeah, the last like a, second. a little bit of misdirection, a fake herring, a red herring. And uh, there's actually a, a big secret cameo in the final episode. So who knows? Jacob, do you have any thoughts? Do you think like a big cameo, does, do you think it makes sense for there to be a big cameo in the final episode of WandaVision based on what we've seen thus far? Absolutely not. At this point, the show should be about its main characters, Wanda and Vision, and anything else is a distraction. And uh, my opinion on this is bless Paul Bettany, bless him for just being a big troll and sending all the nerds into speculation. People are going to be pissed about this. People are already angry on the internet about this and angry at Paul Bettany. But my whole thing is, this is kind of what you get. You reap what you sow when it comes to trying to read too much into a mystery box show, which is what we do on this <laughs> podcast every week. Uh, but my reaction to that is, if you if 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 you if your whole hobby in life, which is often my life, revolves around dissecting pop culture, you got to roll with the punches. And occasionally, you occasionally you're wrong, and occasionally real funny stuff happens. And I think this is really funny. 
<laughs> okay, so we'll see. Uh, I guess we'll we'll report back tomorrow with the, the final uh, word about Paul Bettany's uh, potential troll job there. Um, all right, let's get into the mailbag before we wrap things up today. Uh, Julian from Austin, Texas, uh, wrote us a nice message with a bunch of nice things about the podcast, and uh, I'm just going to read some of the the email here. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the topic of book adaptations, specifically what makes a good adaptation. Um, this person basically says that they prefer the books to the TV shows or movies that, that, you know, um, are often using those books as source material. Um, how can adaptations be done right in your opinion? Uh, is strict adherence to the source material vital or just as long as it's able to capture the overall message and feeling uh, the book was going for, is that good enough? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And if you could name some instances where you actually found the TV or movie adaptation to be better than the original books that they were based on. So before we get into specific examples, um, Jacob and Aisha, I know you guys read a lot. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? What What do you think makes a good adaptation of a book? Uh, Aisha, let's start with you. Uh, well, I think uh, Julian kind of hits the nail on the head when he talks about how it's about capturing the overall message and feeling of the book. It's not about doing such a strict adaptation. And movies and books are, are such separate entities that you don't need to be have the movie be a direct translation of the book. And I think sometimes if they if they try to slavishly adhere to what the book was, it's, it's not as fun. It, it doesn't make use of the new medium that it's in. And so, yeah, I, I think that there can be movies or TV show adaptations that are better than the books. I, can, I think that sometimes they can be worse, even if they're uh, not, uh, even if they're doing taking some creative liberties but um it's it's all kind of it depends basically it, it depends on both the the uh actual like quality of that show and movie in addition to whether they captured that original feeling of the book and whether that book was good to begin with too mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a, that's a huge part of it um jacob do you have any general thoughts about what makes a good adaptation yeah, I'll echo a lot of what HD said. Uh, capturing a book slavishly is the absolute worst way to adapt a book. You want to go for the essence of the book, the feeling of the book. I mean, I guess the, the a famous example, one I'll just that's easy to jump onto because a lot of people have seen it is the first, even the first two Harry Potter movies are so intent on getting the order of the events in the book beat by beat by beat in order and kept and like putting as much of those books on the screen that they forget to be movies. They feel like like you know rushed recaps of the book. Uh, the third Harry Potter movie uh, does the right choice and ditches about half the book and focuses on things that are inherently cinematic and captures the actual feeling of reading that story as opposed to hitting the, the events and hoping that you can mean it halfway and go, yeah, I remember how I felt reading this as opposed to actually feeling it in the theater or you know at home watching it on the screen. So, yeah, I mean, I would rather half of a book's events be cut if it means capturing, you know, the essence of that work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, in our selections here, we've tried to to pick some instances where we like the movie or TV show um, better than the original books. Um, A couple instances came to mind quickly for me. Uh, One is Die Hard, which is based on a 1979 book by Roderick Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever. And I guess full disclosure here, I have not actually read this book, but I've I've read and heard enough about it that I kind of feel like I have. Um, This is me cheating, basically, but this is a really famous example of, um, you know, the screenwriters of the movie taking the best idea, the, the core idea, and um, basically doing everything they can to improve it in, in the best 
possible way. So like in the, the book version, for example, the character um, that Bruce Willis plays in the movie is visiting Los Angeles and he's visiting his daughter instead of his wife. So the dynamic between the characters is completely different there. And then also spoiler alert for the book, Nothing Lasts Forever from 1979. If anybody wants to read it, fast forward now, I'll give you one more second to you know leap dive for the pause button on your, on your podcast device. Uh, but the, his daughter actually dies in the end of the book. Um, and so that's a, a Big, big change from the reconciliation that happens between uh, Willis's character and and the Holly Gennaro character at the end of the movie, um, and just the the uh, yeah, the, there are several other you know significant changes there. And Die Hard obviously has become you know like a, one of the all time action movie classics. So uh, I think that that's a, a good one. One book that I actually have read is uh, Ernest Cline's Ready Player One, which I actively despised uh, almost every page of that book. Um, the movie that was directed by Steven Spielberg uh, is better, but that's not, not really saying that much. Um, I, I still don't love that movie, but it, I found it to be a significant improvement over the book. And and the fact that I still don't love the movie tells you <laughs> really what I think about the quality of the book. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's much better to uh, see that action uh, happening on screen you know, through Spielberg's eye than, um, than to read the, the just awful prose and the have to deal with the sort of the smugness that comes off on the page in, in that, that story. Um, so, uh, even though to show that the best sequence in Steven Spielberg's ready player one was, is one that doesn't appear at all in the book. And that's the shining recreation sequence. Yeah, that's true too. And, and I mean, it, it's just so more, yeah, I, I I don't want to go off any further on just trashing that book because I know there are people probably listening to this who like it quite a bit because it's geared directly at the sort of demographic that reads Slash Film and, and probably listens to this podcast. Um, and this is not like a personal attack on anybody. I just found that book to be very, very tough to read. I thought it was... It's very bad, uh, but HG, let's let's uh, enough of that. Let's go to you. What what are some examples that uh, sprang to mind for you? So uh, a couple that sprang to mind are actually I I just kept thinking of David Fincher movies for example for for some reason, uh, and one was Fight Club, which is a movie that I saw first and I read the book afterwards, and the movie is excellent and just complete, you know firebrand of a film that uh, really dives into that like disillusionment that came with uh, sort of that generation of irony of the 90s. And I picked up the book, uh, I don't know, a couple years ago, and um, I could barely get through it. There's a degree of self-awareness in Fincher's Fight Club in which you feel like he is almost poking fun at these people. He He's not, for example, glamorizing or uh, explicitly endorsing like what these people are, but what uh, Edward Norton's character is thinking in, in Fight Club. And even despite like the culture that has arisen around it, people who do glamorize it. But um, the book itself, you don't get that sense at all. It feels very much like, because it's a it's told from first person. You really get that sense, like this is what the author believes, and this is what that character, and you really feel uh, in line with that character. And it just was a complete slog for me to read because I could not uh, get on board such a dislike, dislikable, unlikable, and uh, gross character and his mindset. So mm. uh, I really disliked the Fight Club book, but the Fight Club movie is still a classic. 
Cool. Any others? Yeah. So Fincher, I feel like he has a, a talent for bringing for elevating books that I did like at the beginning um, and liked even more as a film. So I actually I, I thought of Gone Girl at first, but Gone Girl is actually an anomaly anomaly almost because I just I enjoy the book and the film equally, but for different reasons. And I think that the like the book works in some cases and the movie works in other cases, but I. I I just like I think that they're both kind of perfect in some ways, and I think the same of um, David Fincher's uh, "The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo" movie. Um, I had seen the Swedish version, I had read the book, and the book is is interesting because it's it feels very much like a, a kind of beach read psychological thriller that you enjoy, but feels somewhat like you can discard it. But David Fincher's film captures such a, a specific type of mood that feels really electric and and exciting and the performances to really elevate that so uh, yeah it's a uh, adventure really he, the guy knows how to direct a movie and he really knows how to make an adaptation so um, yeah and shout out to to gillian flynn too because she's one of the few people that i can think of that um adapted her own novel like she wrote the screenplay for the gone girl movie and man what a just uh, you know that script is so great, and uh, the combination of of that script and Fincher's direction and, and all the performances and everything really elevates that whole thing. I think it's that's a, uh, a I guess like an unsung talent. Like you don't really hear that too much. A lot of people try it, but not a lot of people do it as successfully as Gillian Flynn did. I agree. And my last choice is a uh, might, might be a controversial one, or maybe one that's unexpected coming from me, but it's Lord of the Rings. Uh, Peter Jackson's adaptation, uh, not counting the Hobbit movies because that is that was an abominable adaptation. But he really nailed it that first time around with the Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books are actually a series that I still don't really enjoy reading. I I love his Hobbit book. I think it's one of my favorite fantasy books. But he switches up his language and his prose in a way uh, that I just could not really get on board with with the Lord of the Rings. I think the world building and the lore is so intricate and beautiful and wonderfully thought out, but it's the writing style is just not really up my alley. But Peter Jackson works some magic with what's within those Lord of the Rings books and turns it into one of the greatest cinematic trilogies that we've ever had uh, with the Lord of the Rings movies. And it's, it's, I think we've talked about, we raved about Lord of the Rings on this podcast many times. Uh, It's really a miracle that he was able to pull it off in that fashion. And he makes several significant changes. Um, uh, Eowyn, no, not Eowyn, not Eowyn. um, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, He makes several significant changes to the female characters, for example, uh, which when Tolkien wrote them were very much in line with uh, what you would expect from that time period that he wrote them in. Mm -hmm. But uh, Peter Jackson makes those changes and gives them more agency in a way that doesn't feel completely forced, but feels just in, just feels part of that that whole world too. So he um, he really, yeah, he pulled off a miracle with Lord of the Rings books, uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jacob, what about you? Yeah, I I want to start with American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, which is a borderline unreadable book. I I actually tried to read it after enjoying the movie and. I have not read anything from Ellis since because he himself is kind of a not not the kind of person whose, whose work I want to support based on his actual life a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but American Psycho is 
an interesting book because it's entirely from the POV of a psychopath, a murderer and a genuinely evil, like emotionless monster. And being trapped with him in that narrative is an interesting literary experiment, but it's also unbearable. Whereas the film adaptation, which was written directed by a woman, uh, finds the comedy in it. It finds the comedy that, that Ellis uh, simply did not have when he was so interested in being dark and miserable that he forgot how inherently hilarious Patrick Bateman, the main character actually is and how ridiculous he is as a, as a character. And, Work with Christian Bale, they really tap into making American Psycho into a dark comedy, which isn't really on the page, and it really improves material and makes it actually watchable and really funny. So American Psycho is my first pick for a movie that is significantly better than the book. And my other pick would be The Hunger Games trilogy by Suzanne Collins. I know it's YA stuff, and I read the first two books to prepare for the movies, and I really like the movies. I think they're generally well done and well acted and interesting, and they really do expand on the books, which fall into a lot of familiar YA tropes. They feature a character who is ultimately more interested in which boy to pick than she is in her political and wartime situation in front of her. And this is really backgrounded in the movies, uh, especially in the second book. I feel like it's really wrapped up in its, in its really uninteresting love triangle, whereas the movies focus more on Katniss, the character played by Jennifer Lawrence, played extremely well by Jennifer Lawrence, who makes the character so much more interesting on screen by the nature of being Jennifer Lawrence, uh, really rescues a lot of the, you know, tired YA stuff that drags those books down. I never, I never even read the third book. I, I had no interest, but I think all four of those movies are good. And I think they're all so much more interesting than the source material ever could have been. It's interesting that, especially with American Psycho and Fight Club, that you and H.C. sort of hit on like the same kind of idea there that like maybe one of the great things about uh, a good adaptation is like the fact that uh, directors, whether it be in TV or movies, are able to sort of keep audiences at a bit of a distance instead of forcing you into the protagonist headspace, uh, especially when it's a, a, a protagonist that you don't necessarily, um, you know, like align with in terms of their mentalities or worldviews or whatever. Um, but yeah, I feel like American Psycho and, and Fight Club are both good examples of that. Like the, it, it sort of allows a little bit more room, a little bit, a different perspective where like some of the filmmakers, um, uh, I guess, reads and feelings and thoughts can be sort of, inserted into the story instead of um yeah just that that's sort of like first person experience of reading a story so maybe that's maybe part of like a, a general thing we can apply to uh to answer julian's question so um yeah that's great if anybody else has any uh additional you know mailbag topics or or prompts or things that you'd like us to to address you can email those to peter at slashfilm.com along with feedback questions comments and concerns about the podcast uh wandavision theories if you want to you know send in a couple last minute ones you, you've got some a few hours left until the the new episode drops um you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode slashfilm daily is published every weekday bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and uh, take a few minutes if you can to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back for the WandaVision season finale tomorrow. 
Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.